I am Stephan Abrams, the host of the Jackson Hole Connection. Welcome to episode number 34. My guest today is Chris O'Blennis, the owner and operator of Jackson Hole Buffalo Meat Company. Being the owner of a buffalo meat processor is a segue into Chris's big dream of ranching buffalo. Chris has a passion for stewarding land and sustainable husbandry. His roots in raising animals date back to when his grandfather was raising fowl here in the valley. Chris had a wonderful opportunity to work at the famous Blue Hill Farm in Terrytown, New York, where he ran the livestock division and learned the trade of agriculture. Today, we will hear Chris's perspective on raising buffalo in North America and how being persistent with his goals paid off. Sit back and enjoy this young entrepreneur's story, which is just beginning. Before we begin, I have a quick word from one of my sponsors. The liquor store of Jackson Hole, locally owned and operated in Jackson Hole, Wyoming since 1985. Need help picking out wine for a date? No problem. The experienced team of TLS can help you and make you look like a master of wine and you take the credit. Want to know how to concoct the perfect scotch on the rocks? The TLS team can help and your taste buds will love you for it. Stop in and visit the friendly, awesome staff of the liquor store. Let us entertain you. Albertsons is next to us. The liquor store of Jackson Hole, located at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming. Or you can visit us at tlsofjh.com. So Chris, let's talk about a little bit your background and then what you're doing now. In the pre-show we talked, you were born and raised here in Jackson Hole. I was. And how did your family land here in Jackson Hole? Um, my grandfather and his brother used to come here in the late 40s and 50s to elk hunt. My great uncle, uh, he lived in Casper, Wyoming for a thousand years. And when my grandfather retired from the service, he went to work for the Forest Service and asked specifically to be uh, placed in Jackson Hole. And he bought some property here in 1964. And we have been, then my dad came here in 1969, if I remember correctly. Um, he met my mom here and they got married and we've been here ever since. Cool. So now you're the owner of Jackson Hole Buffalo Meat Company. That is correct. And you purchased that business when? Uh, two years ago on the 1st of March. Just and, over two years ago. Okay. Congratulations. Thanks. Great work. Yeah. So far, so good. That business is how old? 72 years. 1947 is when it was first started. Now, you're not 72 years old. No, sir. No, no. I am the f fourth or fifth owner of the business. Okay. So give everybody a little bit of your background, how you went from growing up here in Jackson Hole to now being a business owner, because there's a timeline in there and, sure. and an interesting timeline for sure. sure. I was born and raised here and grew up here. I actually went to high school in Washington State because my dad went back to college. Um, while I was in high school, I got into the restaurant business, uh, and I spent a significant portion of my life in restaurants, uh, starting when I was 15. And I ended up, I worked all over the Western United States, um, and I ended up back here in 2007, and I ended up opening the first farm-to-table restaurant in Wyoming, uh, down south of town where the bird is now. Uh, I worked for Cosmic Apple Gardens over in Victor, Idaho, which is an organic farm in CSA, and I got really into agriculture while working with them, uh, specifically working in vegetables uh, in their operation. And when my restaurant didn't work out, I was looking for a way to move forward in my agricultural career while still staying connected to the restaurant world, because that's what I knew and what I was good at. 
and I ended up moving to New York City, of all places. And I spent nine months in Chinatown, working in a little Italian restaurant that was extremely well regarded. And every day I had a day off, I was going 25 miles north to a town called Terrytown, to a place called the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, which is a nonprofit organization started by the Rockefeller family on their former estate. It is a working farm, uh, an educational center, and a an extremely high-end farm-to-table restaurant, the premier farm-to-table restaurant in the world, really. It's uh, been voted number one restaurant in the United States and top 10 in the world a couple times. It's called Blue Hill at Stone Barns. So I worked in their livestock department for almost seven years and ended up running it by the time I left there. So we raised everything from chickens to geese to pigs to cattle to sheep and goats and ducks and turkeys and you name it, bees, and we raised all those specifically for human consumption and sale and specifically to the restaurant itself. Um, We had a state-certified poultry slaughter facility, and we processed 200 chickens a week for the restaurant and for sale, and I ran sheep in a public park on the Hudson River with the skyline of Manhattan in the background. It was kind of crazy and kind of random, but it was an amazing experience. It was very uh, intensive rotational grazing, very progressive, open to the public. We did a lot of education, school groups, uh, apprenticeships, public programs, and that's where I found my true passion, which is raising livestock. So I spent, like I said, about seven years there. Um, I knew at a certain point that there wasn't much farther I could go with that organization, and I started looking around for the next step. And what I really wanted to do and where I've always been drawn is back here to Jackson. And what I really want to do is raise bison. So there wasn't really any legitimate or realistic way for me to go directly into raising bison because I didn't have any money or land or bison. And I knew that if I wanted to get to that point, I was going to have to kind of think outside the box and come at it from a different direction. So I have a very good friend who had worked for the Jacksonville Buffalo Meat Company seasonally for over 10 years and knew the owners really well. And I approached her and asked her if she thought that they would ever be interested in selling. And I had also had some dealings with them in the past when I was working at uh, the whole grocer here in Jackson years and years ago. I was a specialty buyer and I bought jerky from them for the store. So I knew about the business. It's been around for a long time. It's a bit of an institution here in town. And my friend reached out to the previous owners and asked them if they'd be interested in, in selling at any point, and they were open to it. And we started a, what ended up being almost a two-year negotiation to, to get the deal done. And we, I closed on the business uh, March 1st of 2017. So now we ship jerky, buffalo steaks, burgers, all sorts of products all over the United States. We sell wholesale here locally. We also sell retail here locally in our store. We sell a lot of jerky to tourists in the summertime, and we sell a lot of burgers and things like that to restaurants here around town. And like I said, we ship all over the country every day. Uh, sort of a, a tiny version of a Omaha Steaks, if you will, but all specializing in game meat. So buffalo, elk, wild boar, smoked trout, that sort of stuff. So, Wow. Yeah. Fantastic story. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing all that detail. And... Congratulations on staying with the two-year negotiation. Yeah, it was a it was a process for sure. I I, I don't think that the previous owner was entirely uh, committed to selling the business. I think it was a probably a negotiation on his part between him and his wife on what their future was going to look like. Um, but I was pretty persistent about it, and I I convinced some people to put some money in to back me. And I I have a, a friend who was willing to basically guarantee my loan and co-sign with me and and which was the final straw to get the deal done and once that was done then the the price that we negotiated upon was 
like they say, you know, it, you know, it's a good deal when neither side is fully satisfied. It, uh, <laughs> I came into it, and he walked away from it, and I think we both got what we needed out of it. So, and what has the learning experience been like for you going from being in agriculture, raising livestock, running a department which raises livestock, to now you are running a business? It's been a steep learning curve. I feel like I am uh, running a business and going to business school at the same time. Uh, I am not a business-minded person generally, so I've been forced to learn a little bit on the fly. Luckily, I have a lot of people who have been willing to reach out and uh, assist me and help me and mentor me along the way, which has been amazing because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it. But it has been a big transition for me. I went from a very visceral world where things move from point A to point B you build things, you take things down. It's very seasonal. There's times of year where you know exactly where you're going to be and what's happening. You know, sheep need to be moved from point A to point B. You go out, you do it, and you see the results of your labor. And you, it's all very upfront and very um, hands-on. You know, even things like processing chickens and, and that sort of thing. Like you start your day, you do your work, you end your day, and you see exactly the fruits of your labors and the results. Um, and it really came down to what you could do with your hands and what your skill level was. And just understanding the environment and the animals themselves and seeing these bigger picture cycles and systems that we were all a part of in this in this grazing operation, I came to understand it really well and I was really good at it. But now, I and I worked outside, I worked with my hands, you know, I was very much in the environment. Now I work in my office. It's, I don't necessarily see the results of the my labor immediately. Um, I don't get a lot of exercise in this job, but it's been much more of a challenge for my brain and to step outside of my comfort zone and learn some things that I didn't know before. And like I said, luckily I have people who are willing to, to mentor me and guide me in this process, which has been invaluable. So yeah, finding mentors. It's huge. It's been that I wouldn't be able to succeed or survive if I didn't have the people that have stepped in and guided me generally just out of the kindness of their own hearts. So it's been really. There's a lot of successful business people with experience who want to share their experience and knowledge. And it's just a matter of us as business people as well and young business people realizing that we don't know it all. Yep. And it's okay to reach out and get advice and guidance from somebody who does have the experience. Yep. And there, I think retirement is boring for a lot of people, especially <laughs> really successful people who are good at what they do. And I think that they are in search of something to do that's meaningful and has an impact on their community. And I think this is a great way. And I'm, I'm the beneficiary of that. So I, I feel very, very lucky and grateful for that. I want to go back to when you were in New York. Okay. You were working in restaurants that was your experience but then you go up to blue hill and it was at stone farms stone barns yep and what drove you to say i need or i want to be exposed to something else versus just saying i'm gonna go do whatever i'm gonna go into hang out in city park for my days off you took your days off your free time but you went and worked yeah, so I, I the whole reason I wanted to go to New York was to work at that for that organization. And I had applied for an apprenticeship f- with them and not to go too deep into it, but I, I applied for the apprenticeship based on a schedule that they had given, um, sent off my application and everything. I knew I was the number one candidate with my background. I, there wasn't anybody that was going to be 
a stronger candidate than me. Um, and then I had a chance to go down the Grand Canyon for a month on a raft trip, which I, I took that opportunity and I did it thinking that I would still have another month after I came back to touch base with the organization, see if there's anything further that I needed to do, if there was anything, you know, they needed from me. Well, while I was in the Grand Canyon and incommunicado, they changed their time frame and couldn't get a hold of me. So they were made a decision while I was not available and chose two other people for the apprenticeship that I was going for. I understand why they needed to do what they did, but I was not happy about it when I came out of the Grand Canyon. I was, and that was the first email I got was, oh, your application looks amazing. Come on out for a trial day. And then the next email I got was, oh, sorry, you're not available. We have to make a decision faster than we anticipated. So why don't you try again next year? And I did not accept that. So I jumped in my car and I drove to New York and I showed up at the farm and I ended up working a 13 hour day with the, the head of the livestock department at that time. I think I made it very clear that he had made a poor decision in deciding ahead of time. Um, and I just decided to throw caution to the wind and just dive in headfirst and try to make it work. So I moved to Chinatown with 800 bucks in my pocket and I got a job in a restaurant and I spent every day that I had a day off commuting up to the farm and just throwing myself in as a volunteer and proving my worth. And a few months after I started doing that, they offered me a part-time job and then someone left, which that then turned into a full-time job. And then I ended up sticking around for almost seven years. And by the time I left there, I was running the livestock department. So just persistence paid. I just kept pushing it and pushing it. And uh, I knew that agriculture was where I wanted to be even at my time at Cosmic Apple. And I grew up around livestock. You know, my funnily enough, my grandfather who lived here in Jackson, he raised chickens and geese and cattle when I was really little. Um, some of my earliest memories is going to pick up baby chicks with him. And then I also found out that my grandfather on my mom's side and my grandmother met in Briarcliff Manor, New York, which was three miles from where Stone Barns was located huh. in the 30s. And I found out that at the time, that grandfather was raising turkeys in Briarcliff Manor, which is what I was doing when I was living three miles down the road. So there was this really interesting closed loop as far as like my heritage and in this world. And it's what I was put on this earth to do. I'm very good at it. It makes my soul ring. And I want to continue to do that. I just knew that most of the people that I saw that were trying to pursue careers in small scale sustainable agriculture were really struggling. Business is a huge part of it. And I didn't want to get into a position where I was just scraping by for the rest of my life. I knew that it would make sense to buy a successful business that's in the field of what I want to get into, which is raising bison, and then leverage that into vertical integration and in a scenario where we can be raising our own animals for use in, our, in my store and my operation. So I came back to Wyoming. I bought this business, and my goal is to eventually acquire some land or lease some land or partner with someone who has some land and acquire our own bison and raise them for our own use and consumption in my store. So that's the sort of bigger picture of what it is that I'm trying to do. Living in New York was amazing for me. I never thought I would live anywhere near there. Uh, it was a transformative experience in my life and I will always treasure it. But I'm happy to be back in Jackson and moving forward on my, my, bigger, my bigger picture goals, so. There's not many people that I meet on the street or just out and about who are so passionate and driven toward what they know they really want, that they're willing to volunteer their time to get their foot in the door into an organization. And I applaud you and 
hope the people listening take a little bit of inspiration and say, you know what, if I'm not doing what I really want, I can find the time to figure out how I can get there yeah, and, I, and make I, that investment in my time. I think uh, one of the things that really sort of pushed it over the top for me was when the executive director of Stone Barns found out that I was sleeping in a pig hut uh, on the nights that I was going up to volunteer just so that I wouldn't have to spend the money to take the train back down into Manhattan when I was there. And I was so dedicated that I was willing to literally sleep on the ground to make sure that I was there in time in the morning to get started and, and to be ready to go. And I think that level of dedication set me apart from everybody else. So, and, I, it, was, and it was fun. It was, a, it was a fun adventure for sure. Not Yeah. You're one of the first people I've ever met. I'd say the first person that I've ever met that I'd say slept with pigs. Well, there weren't any pigs in the pig huts. That would be a, <laughs> that, that, that'd be a bit far, but it was a, you know, was a, a nice clean pig hut on a nice clean stretch of grass. I'm going to let the pigs have their own huts to themselves. But yeah, it was, um, I just was willing to do whatever it took. So I had nothing to lose. And so tell us about how the vertical integration with you raising the bison will get you to where you want to be and, and, and why you want that complete vertical integration. Well, coming from a place where you could say it's the most progressive farm-to-table operation in America or the world for all intents and purposes, and understanding that the way that the food industry is moving these days is towards more sustainability and more authenticity and a better story and and the you know the idea that you can have control over your product but also at the same time be stewarding land and practicing really good animal husbandry and integrating those things into a business that already exists because right now what we do is we buy our raw materials from the slaughterhouses regional slaughterhouses that work with bison ranchers so if you're raising bison in South Dakota or Nevada or Oregon, or you're going to go to the regional slaughterhouse that specializes in bison, you're going to sell your animals live to those slaughterhouses, and then they're going to pay you based on what they call the hanging weight, which is the carcass after it's been skinned and gutted and da-da-da-da-da. Then those slaughterhouses take those, those carcasses, and then each one has their own different business model based on what they do, whether it's cut steaks for retail sale or one-pound packages of Buffalo Burger for Kroger and Costco. So we buy raw materials from those slaughterhouses, bring them to our shop, and we make all of our own products. We make our jerkies, we grind our burgers, make our sausages, we cut our steaks, um, which is great. And that business model's worked for a really long time. But the reality of the situation is, is that the story behind us is not as authentic as someone who has their own cattle ranch or their own bison ranch and is selling their own product. There's just a level of authenticity there that I aspire to because I know how much it resonates with our customers. And also, totally selfishly, I want to be out in the field raising these animals. That's what I'm good at, and that's where that's what my eventual goal is. I don't know that we would ever be able to raise enough animals to supply all of our needs, but that's okay. I think it just as important as raising our own animals is having good relationships and connections with, with our neighbors who are raising bison, of which there's a few of them in the area, and, and I think being able to work cooperatively with all of us together to uh, with the same end goal is a, a really um, admirable end result, especially in the bison business because it's such a small business compared to, say, the cattle industry. I mean, there's only 525,000 bison in North America. We only slaughter about 55,000 of them a year, and we slaughter 120,000 cows a day in the United States. So (laughs) that gives you an idea of the scale of what we're working with here. So I found nothing but support and, and open arms with other producers, other businesses in the bison business, and a cooperative model has sort of been the 
the overarching model of, of the bison industry. So if I could get to a point where I am raising some of my own animals, also buying animals from my friends who have a ranch in Swan Valley or my friends who have a ranch down in Pinedale um, and just regionally coordinating and cooperating with other producers, that to me seems like the best end result. So I just want to get to a point where I have the flexibility and the, the ability to purchase as locally as I can and have as much control as I can over the supply line while telling a story that resonates with people and is authentic and is real. So so why buffalo versus cow? What's the differentiation <laughs> in, of... For me personally, like why did I go choose to go into this business or what's the difference between... What's the, what can... So if somebody wants to get on your website and order some buffalo meat from you, what are they going to experience as far as the quality, the style, uh, the flavors of buffalo versus if they received some beef? I would say anatomically, they're very similar to a certain extent. Like a, a, a buffalo ribeye is going to look very similar to a beef ribeye within reason, depending on how that beef ribeye was raised. There's such a wide, you know, like a Wagyu versus a commodity animal versus grass-fed. There's a lot of variations in there, but it, it, at the core, they're very similar animals anatomically. Bison is significantly leaner than beef, especially if you're talking about like a grain-finished beef or, you know, a commodity animal, like a grass-fed, grass-fed animal is going to be a little bit more similar. There is a slight, there's a flavor difference there for sure. Really, the biggest difference is in the history of the bison and, and what they represent for North America and for Americans themselves. Like there were between 30 and 60 million bison in North America at one point. They were the dominant organism of the entire North American continent. They did, helped symbiotically develop the massive grasslands of the of the Midwest and the Great Plains. I think I love beef. I eat it all the time. Um, but I think that really when it comes right down to it, cows are not native to North America. They're a Southeast Asian species that was imported. And I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we have more bison than we have cows. But I think the more work that we can do to bring back more bison and help to reestablish their natural place in North America is good karma for all intents and purposes. And the more bison we eat, the more bison there will be, which is a paradox, but it's very true. So if it's cost effective and, and profitable for people to raise bison because they can sell that, that meat, they're going to want to raise more bison. So they're going to produce more bison. So for me, it's almost a spiritual quest of bringing back this magnificent animal that ruled North America and provided subsistence for all of the indigenous peoples pre-contact, that to me is a life goal worth living. There's enough people raising beef out there and cows and they can do their thing. I'm not, I'm just not that interested in that partially because I'm just not that interested in cows themselves. They're, when you spend some time with cattle and you spend some time with bison and you just, you see intrinsically the difference between the two species and the, the spirit of the bison and the power of the animal versus the sort of cow-like nature of cows it's <laughs> it's not that interesting or exciting to me and not to take anything away from the people who are doing it and doing it really well I have some really good friends who are cattle ranchers and I, I totally understand but for me personally I just resonate so much more strongly with these amazing creatures that also happen to taste really good and make for a great business so cool yeah I never knew so much about the buffalo yeah it's they're they're amazing creatures like they just you know, at one point there were less than a thousand bison left in North America. So we went from 30 to 60 million to less than a thousand in 30 years. And that was 
a tragedy of a scale that it's really hard for us to even comprehend or understand. And the fact that we're back up to 525,000 from less than a thousand is, is an amazing fact, but that's, we need, there should be more. And the goal of the National Bison Association, which is the overarching uh, trade and industry group that of producers is to get to a million within the next 10 years. And that's still a drop in the bucket compared to what was originally living in North America. So you know, I just have, I want to make it my life's goal to produce and, and support as many bison and bison ranchers and, and bison businesses as I can. That's a big goal. Yeah. Big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> yes, it is. And I would say you are the man to be a part of it and, and accomplishing that goal. Thank you. I hope so. so <laughs> yeah. I just got to figure out how to run a business so that I can get get it all stabilized and, and, and up and running. And, and then I can get back out in the field and put my hands to work where, where my talents truly lie, which is uh, actually raising and producing animals. Oh, you're so. just scratching the surface to start another uh, business. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, keeps me up at night. But And for you to raise buffalo, is there a difference between the acreage needed to raise buffalo compared to cattle? Um, anytime you talk about the specifics of raising livestock and, and, and agriculture in general, it becomes very, every situation is unique. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, there's what's called an animal unit when that you use for planning your grazing for grazing purposes, which basically represents what one cow is going to eat in a set period of time, and you denominate that with a number of one. Well, a bison, because of their natural acclimation to this area, the hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that they have gone through in in this environment, they generally are assigned an animal unit of 0.8, which means that they are able to live on less forage and of a much wider availability of forage and types of forage than your average cow would. So you actually need potentially, and there's, there's always caveats, less land to raise bison on than you would cattle. But you also have to be aware of the handling of bison is different than it is from cows. The fencing concerns are, are a little different. There's a lot of myths and rumors and horror stories about people raising bison and how they smash fences and they'll destroy things and they're wild beasts. And all of those are potentially true. And a lot of those stories come from, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago when people were going out and capturing wild bison from park preserves and state parks and that sort of thing. And they were being auctioned off and you know, people were trying to... to not civilized, but domesticate these animals. And if you take a wild bison, you try to load it on a trailer or put it in a confinement situation or put it behind fencing, you're going to have issues. <laughs> <laughs> There's really no way around that. Dustin Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you have a bison that was born into a system of fencing and shoots and, and trailers and, and uh, your average like livestock operation, the, the more acclimated they get to that, Easy, easier they are to handle. So I'd always believe that you needed eight foot high woven wire fencing surrounding your entire property with massive log, you know, like wooden posts and, you know, just heavy duty, like oh, heavy, heavy. Well, that's not entirely true. I know people that are raising bison on 12,000 acres behind four strand barbed wire fencing that's four and a half feet high. Hmm. Not to say that they don't occasionally get out, but the reality of the situation is like all animals, if they're well fed and they're well watered and they're not stressed out, they're really not interested in getting up to any to no good. They're they're generally pretty happy with where they're at. So I've as I've been exploring this and working my way towards eventually having my own animals, I've learned that 
it's a fair bit simpler than I had anticipated. Now, that being said, when the time comes to sort your animals or vaccinate or pregnancy check or, you know, sort for sale versus breeding or to wean calves, the shoot system that you need to run those animals through definitely needs to be a little bit more burly than what you need for cattle just because these they're powerful, incredible animals and they can jump six feet from standing. You know, some of the bigger animals weigh 12, 15, 1800 pounds. Um, they have and a better vertical leap than most basketball players. Significantly better. <laughs> um, and But the reality is that when they're not domesticated per se, like you can work with them, but you can't work on them. And you have to respect their intrinsic needs and instincts. And if you do that and you understand these animals well enough, you can work with them and things can go smoothly and and everything can be calm and copacetic. You can also go the other direction and stress them out and you're going to have a lot of nightmare problems. So th- you do need to be aware of the, the intrinsic nature of these animals when you want to start working with them and, and be prepared for that. But if you do it properly and you use low stress handling techniques and you have a good system that's designed with the animal's needs in mind, it's not any more difficult than running cattle through a chute. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's more simple because there are things that you do with cows, excuse me, that you don't do with bison. You don't castrate bison. You don't brand bison. You only run them through a chute generally one time a year. Uh, You do ear tag them. You do vaccinate them. You do pregnancy check them. But you're not getting as hands-on with bison as you are with cattle. And to me, that's a that's a benefit. Like, it's less labor generally involved. So the profit margins in bison is significantly better than cattle too. So to me, anybody that wanted to get into livestock business and wanted to start from scratch, I would recommend looking into bison far before looking into cattle because there's so much more competition in the cattle business and the prices are lower and, you know, just the commodity markets fluctuate. And whereas the bison business has an incredible amount of demand and not that much supply. So it's a, it's a, I recommend that they contact you first. <laughs> yeah, if anybody's out there has some land and wants to get into this, give me a call and let me know because I got I got all sorts of ideas. Um, it's a it's a growth industry. Um, they're magnificent animals. People are always interested in them, and they're delicious. And there's a market for them. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting business to be in, and I'm I'm really excited to be a part of it. And I can't wait to continue to grow and keep moving forward, and eventually have my own. So so what's the name of your website? Uh, the business is the Jackson Hole Buffalo Meat Company, and the website is uh, jhbuffalomeat.com, uh, and that's our, our our e-commerce website. You can go on there. You can get all sorts of information. You can order steaks and burgers and jerky from us. Uh, you can email me for information. There's some content on there about how to cook bison because there's definitely some some differences between to cooking bison and cooking beef, and just sort of informative. And it's it's a new website that we just relaunched, so it's 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 growing and improving. So keep an eye out because there's. Ideally, going to be a lot more content coming down the pipe of, uh, you know, just we're hoping to have our own bison potentially this summer. So when that happens, we'll be able to share with you, you know, what we're doing, how they're being raised, what the processes are like, and just sort of dig deep into what the bison ranching world is like and sort of share more background information on the products that we're selling. So So real quick, what are one or two differences of how to cook bison compared to cow? Well, bison is generally a fair amount leaner than beef is. Um, And that's a generalization because, you know, like I said, there's grass-fed beef and then there's corn-fed beef and everything in between. Then there's Wagyu and, like, there's a million different ways to have beef. But as a rule of thumb, bison is leaner, so you're going to want to be a little bit more cautious about how you cook it. And you're not going to want to probably cook it past medium-rare because it'll start to dry out. It'll start to become tough. 
um, and you'll lose the the beneficial aspects and the and the pleasurable aspects of those cuts of meat, and you're going to be disappointed because you're paying a premium for these cuts of meat as well. It's, you know, bison meat is not inexpensive. It's uh, it is a, a premium item generally because of the number of animals versus the demand. So you just want to be careful that you just you know hot cook it hot and fast if you're having a steak and don't cook it past medium rare and, and just enjoy the the delicious aspects of it. Um, if you like your steaks well done, you should go buy some corn-fed beef. <laughs> I don't really know what else to tell or, you. <laughs> or maybe some ground beef. Or, or, or ground some ground, buffalo. Yeah, or some ground buffalo. But even then, like, you know, just don't ever cook your meat well done. It's okay. not worth it. So. <laughs> Got that, everybody? Don't cook your buffalo well done. No. Nope. Right on. What is an email address people can use to reach out and ask you questions? Um, you can reach me at info at jhbuffalomeat.com. Uh, I'm always on the computer. I'm ready to answer questions and uh, help people understand the business, and hopefully send them some bison meat and get them, get them, at, you know, into it and get a taste of it and move them forward from there. So fantastic! Yeah. And you ship out every day of the week, or do you just Monday ship through out? Wednesday? Okay. Uh, we ship FedEx two day. Uh, our our frozen everything's frozen. It goes on dry ice in a styrofoam container. Mm-hmm. Um, we're moving forward on updating, you know, our packaging and the styrofoam and trying to become as environmentally responsible as we can. Um, but yeah, we ship. So if you live in Florida, which you'd be amazed at how much buffalo meat I send to Florida, we would put it in a styrofoam container with dry ice, drop ship it two day FedEx, and you would have it. If we sent it on Monday, you'd have it by Wednesday. So we ship Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, year round. So fantastic. Yep. I love it. Yep. Chris, thank you for your time sure. and sharing your story and your passion sure. about animal husbandry and um, bringing the buffalo back yep. to North America. Yep. I really appreciate and it. Like I said, if anybody out there has got some land and wants to get into business, just give me a call <laughs> and let me know. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, Have a pleasure. fantastic day and keep on selling some buffalo. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yep. Jackson Hole Marketplace, a small shop with a huge personality. Located at 4115 South Highway 89, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Or you can visit us online at jacksonholemarketplace.com. Jackson Hole Marketplace is the best little corner store not on a corner. Stop in for fresh hot breakfast and lunch made daily. Or if you're in a super hurry, there's plenty of other fast to grab and go items. Fuel the kid or a kid inside of you with ice cream, candy, snacks, and beverages. Like to enjoy the adult side of life? We have a fully stocked bottle shop with wines from around the globe, spirits to treat every taste bud, and really cold beer. We love treating our customers like family, so stop in and visit the team at Jackson Hole Marketplace. One more episode is complete, and I say farewell until next time. You rock for tuning in each week and sharing this podcast with your friends. Listeners such as yourself, keep me driven to continue searching out new guests to interview. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone connected to Jackson Hole whom I should interview, send me a note via email, connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. Or you can connect with us via Facebook page, facebook.com slash jacksonholeconnection. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Five stars, of course, because I really like five stars. The Jackson Hole Connection is all about sharing, caring stories of worldly, wildly folks with a desire to share the fun side of life. This is Stephan Abrams, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Thank you to my wife for her support. Thank you to Michael Morey for editing and directing me. Thank you to Luke Taylor for the rad music, and thank you to Tana Hoffman for spreading the word each week. Y'all come back again now, you hear?